As we uh, continue our little journey in Scripture, where it talks about time, we turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, probably one of those passages that we are very familiar with, especially when it comes to the word time. I counted this morning, and if I counted right, you find the word time 33 times in this chapter. So I guess it's pretty clear what the theme is, right? What time is it? Is the title from Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and we begin reading at verse 1. There is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven. A time to give birth, and a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to uproot what is planted. A time to kill, and a time to heal, a time to tear down, and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to throw stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to shun embracing, a time to search and a time to give up as lost, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear apart and a time to sew together, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war. And a time for peace. What profit is there to the work, to the worker from that in which he toils? I've seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even unto the end. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it and there is nothing to take from it. For God has so worked that men should fear him. That which is has been already, and that which will be has already been, for God seeks what has passed by. Furthermore, I have seen under the sun that in the place of justice there is wickedness, and in the place of righteousness there is wickedness. I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man for a time for every matter and for every deed is there. I said to myself, concerning the sons of men, God has surely tested them in order for them to see that they are but beasts. For the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath, and there is no advantage for man over a beast, for it's all vanity. All go to the same place, all come from dust, and all return to the dust. Who knows that the breath of man ascends upward and the breath of the beast ascends downward to the earth. I've seen that nothing is better than that man should be happy for his activities, for that is his lot. For who will bring him to see what will occur after him? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that we have this morning. Time to focus on you. Time to to learn some of the lessons about time. And Lord, I pray that we would be able to answer that question today. What time is it? Uh, Teach us, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. 
Victor Borga told a friend of his one day that he could tell time by his piano. And his friend was obviously a little bit uh, wondering about that, and he said, I'll show you. And so he started banging out a loud blast on a piano. And sure enough, as soon as he did that, there was a loud shrieking voice that came from the neighbor. Stop that noise. Don't you know it's 1.30 in the morning? <laughs> he said, see, <laughs> I can tell time by my piano. If I asked you what time is it, you would probably look at your watch. Some of you don't wear watches anymore, I know. You'd look at your cell phone. Or I could look at the clock up there, and I'm very glad that I can't see it. Helps me when I preach, right? And you'd say, okay, it's like almost 9.30, and you would, you'd be right, right? What time is it? And you would give me a, give me a time. That's not the only way to look at time. Solomon looks at time in this chapter from the perspective of the seasons of life. And that's another way of looking at time, not just looking at a clock, but there are seasons of life that we all go through, that we all experience, and we need to understand what time is it in terms of the seasons of life. And I believe Solomon gives us four important lessons here about time. The first one is obvious in verse 1, that God has appointed a time for everything. Verse 1, there is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven. Now think about it. If there is an appointed time for everything, then someone must be in charge of making these Appointments, right? Who is that? Who's got his appointment book? Well, we know that that's the Lord, right? God has an appointment book. He has an appointed time for everything and for every event under heaven. Now, those who don't believe that God exists must then live their lives as if everything happens by chance. They are either victims of bad luck or they are beneficiaries of, of good luck. And all they can do is just... When you got fat fingers, you've got to go like that. All they can do is just cross their fingers and just hope for the best, right? How does that work in life? How many of you are crossing your fingers and hoping for the best of the gopher game against Michigan State? Did it help? <laughs> Caleb's a Michigan State fan. He was rejoicing this morning. It doesn't help to cross your fingers and hope for the best, right? It doesn't really work. What a, what a depressing way to live. Thinking that there, there is no God, that, that things just happen by chance, that there's no one who is uh, involved in this world. It just is, yeah, whatever will be, will be, right? Que sera, sera, whatever will, will be, will be. Aren't you glad that God is in control? Aren't you glad that the one who loves us and cares for us is ordaining the events of our lives? He has an appointed time for everything. And does he not know what is best for us, for all of us? Now, if God has an appointed time for the events of our lives, then we need to know what time it is, don't we? If we don't know what time it is in terms of God's plan for us, 
I would suggest to you that we can cause all kinds of problems, both for ourselves and for others, if we don't know what time it is. For example, if it's time to plant and we're trying to uproot, that's not a good thing. Or if we're trying to tear down when it's really time to build up, or we are mourning when it's time to be dancing, or we are keeping instead of throwing away, we are going to run into all kinds of trouble. We need to know what time it is. Let me give you an example. Some years ago, there was a man. Last name was Olsen, right? Norwegian guy. And when you tell a Norwegian joke with the last name of Olsen... What's the first name? Oli Olsen, right? Be Sven and Oli, but if you're going to give last names, it'd be Oli Olsen. Well, this guy and his wife had a baby. And I found out about it, and I said, well, what did you name him? He said, Oli. I laughed. He didn't laugh. He named him Oli. And I thought, my, oh, my, that's very interesting because whenever there's a Norwegian joke, it's Oli Olsen. It was not the time to laugh. I was wondering if it was the time to mourn, but I didn't say that, right? It's the time to laugh, time to mourn. Ray Stedman, in his book, Is This All There Is to Life? asked the question, have you ever laughed at the wrong time? He says, I have. And he describes it being at a funeral when someone, the leader, asked all present to stand up on their feet. And the guy sitting next to him asked the question, he said, what else could you stand on? And he said, it struck me so funny that in the midst of that funeral, he said, I just burst out laughing. It wasn't the time to be laughing at a funeral. I faced one of those times. I've never prayed so hard that I would not laugh at a funeral. I must confess to you, there was a guy who was leading the singing at the service. Actually, the family asked, said, we got a good friend. He's got a wonderful voice. Do you mind if he led the... The songs, the congregational songs. We were meeting in the funeral home. I said, that's fine. Well, I'm sitting right to the side of the podium where he's leading. He gets up there. He was so loud and so flat and was leading the singing. He was singing harmony. Okay, now I'm sitting there and I'm looking back at our organist and our soloist. And they had, the, the, the look on their face was just, I just about lost it. I said, Lord, you've got to help me. If I've ever needed an answer to prayer, it is now, Lord, help me. Because if I burst out laughing, they're looking at him and I'm sitting right by him. I knew what time it was. It was not time to laugh. Oh, God, help me. Please, please help me. So God has appointed a time for everything, and we need to recognize that. What time is it? Because if we don't understand what time it is in all the seasons of life and all the events under heaven, we might run into some trouble sometime. 
Philip Ryken describes how Jesus understood this. He says, when we witness the work of Jesus in the Gospels, we see a Savior who always knew what time it was. There was a time for Him to be born. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son. There was also an appointed day for Jesus to die. The Scripture says, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And if you read through the Gospels, you see how Jesus knew that. Several times He said, my time has not yet come. There was that consciousness in Jesus who he always knew what time it was. For example, Jesus knew the right time for every emotion. At the grave of Lazarus, what did he do? He wept. Shortest verse in the Bible, John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. But he also knew when it was time to rejoice when the disciples came back after their first little mission, those 70, he was rejoicing with them as what God had done through their lives. Reichen says Jesus also knew when it was time to speak, when it was time to keep silent. Some of us could maybe learn that lesson. He did a lot of talking during the three short years of public ministry as he told parables, explained the law, preached the gospel. But when it came time for his trial, Jesus was silent, right? And they were amazed that he, how silent he was, like a, like a lamb that was being led to slaughter. So he was silent. And then Riken says, to the day he died, Jesus knew the right time for everything, and he still does. He still does. Have you ever rebelled against God's appointed time in your life? Have you ever tried to give advice to God or to change God's will in some way to make it better? (laughs) As if we know what would make it better? If you have, you've probably concluded that that isn't the best thing to do. And Solomon would agree with you. Verse 14, he says, I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it. And there is nothing to take from it. For God has so worked that men should fear Him. We aren't going to improve on what God does, are we? And even if we don't understand what God is doing, we need to resist the urge to try and change it. He has an appointed time for everything. And He knows what He's doing, doesn't He? Now, we might not always understand that, but God knows what He's doing. Second lesson we learn, God has made everything beautiful in its time. Verse 11, He has made everything, the New American Standard translates it, appropriate. The word literally is beautiful. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Now, it's important to look carefully at what he is saying here so we don't misunderstand him. He isn't saying that everything is beautiful. There are many things in this world that aren't beautiful, right? Events in our lives, everything that that you've experienced, has it all been beautiful? All been wonderful? All been just glorious? The flu you got this winter or whatever? I mean, it's like uh, we need to understand what he's saying. We don't have to live very long to know that everything in life isn't beautiful. How about Joseph? 
sold by his brothers to slavery, framed by Potiphar's wife, thrown in jail, sat there for two years, even after telling one of his jailmates, you know, when you get out, tell, tell Pharaoh I haven't done anything wrong. I shouldn't be here. And he sat there for two years. But did God have a purpose in what he allowed in Joseph's life? Yes, he did. And that purpose became clear in time that God had sent him ahead of his family, ahead of his nation, to spare the nation and to carry on the promise of a Savior. In God's time, that which seemed to be very ugly took on beauty in its time. Romans 8.28 is a verse we often quote, God causes all things to work together for good. Does it say that all things are good? No. We live in a fallen world, right? And we experience all kinds of things that aren't good. They're hard. They're difficult. They're painful. What does Paul say? That God causes all things to work together for good. In that process of, the very next verse, being conformed to the image of Jesus. When you bake something, you put in various ingredients, right? That if you were to taste each one of those ingredients, you'd probably spit them out, right? Try put some flour in your mouth, see how that tastes. Or some other stuff, raw eggs. I'll tell you what, when you mix it all together... There's something about that where it turns out like, wow, how did all of these various ingredients, some of them good, some of them not so good, how did it turn out like, wow, that's what God does. That's what he does. Not all things are good, but God causes all things to accomplish good. So does that mean that we will always understand God's purpose in all the events of life? I think you know the answer to that, don't you? We might wish that was true. But Solomon says that God hasn't promised this. Verse 11, He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. What's he saying there? Though God helps us to understand that there is an eternal purpose in what He does, we don't always see that purpose clearly. Now, we might wish we did, but maybe with the process of time, as we look back, we can see, okay, now, Lord, I understand that. There may be things that we may not ever fully understand. Why? Because we're not God. His ways are so far above ours. His thoughts are so far above ours that we don't fully comprehend the wise and the so forth. H.C. Leupold says man has a deep-seated sense of eternity, of purposes and destinies. Yet even then he is not able fully to master the problem for the reach of eternity involved is too vast for him. He may well know of God's blessed power and His purposes and yet not be able to trace them through in detail as God operates. 
Occasionally, man catches glimpses of God's high and holy purposes and must trust God for the rest, which he cannot see and understand. Some people respond to that inability to see God's purpose with great frustration. They become bitter towards God or they wonder, does God love them? Does God even exist? And many end up walking away from the Lord. They say, well, if, if this is what it means, I don't want it. How many times have you heard someone say, if there is a God, why would he do this? Or if there is a God, why would he allow that? They just can't gr- seem to grasp God's purposes. But we need to come to the place where it's okay if we don't fully understand His purposes. We need to come to that place where we rest to them and say, Lord, okay, You are God and I am not. I don't understand this. It doesn't make sense to me. I just have to trust You, Lord, in the midst of this. That's why Leopold says, occasionally man catches glimpses of God's high and holy purposes, and must trust God for the rest, which he cannot see and understand. Think of Job. Talk about a man that went through things he did not understand. He lost everything he owned in one day. Lost all of his children in one day. Lost his health. In some ways, he lost his wife because she basically said, I'll just curse God and die. She wasn't there to really encourage him and point to the Lord. And throughout the book of Job, there's all these questions that he has. And then his friends come along and they have the magical answer, right? Yeah, you did something wrong. If you just deal with your sin, it'll be better. And Job's saying, well, what have I done? What have I done to deserve this? And if you read the end of the book, he never really got the answer. It's not like God says, okay, here's, here's the reasons, Job. He just had to come to the place. He said, Lord, you are God and I am not. And I bow at your feet. He had to rest in the fact that God has made everything beautiful in its time. A third lesson about time is that God has appointed a time when he will judge every man. One of the things that seemed to bother Solomon as he observed life under the sun, that's his kind of perspective throughout the book, as he looked at what was going on, what bothered him, he saw so much injustice in the world. Verse 16, he says, Furthermore, I have seen under the sun that in the place of justice there is wickedness, and in the place of righteousness there is wickedness. And that isn't just a passing thought because he goes back to this theme over and over in the rest of the book. Chapter 4, verse 1, he said, Then I looked again at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun. And behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors was power, but they had no one to comfort them. Chapter 5, verse 8, he says, If you see oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness in the province, do not be shocked. (laughs) Don't be surprised at this. 
Why? He says, for one official watches over another official, and there are higher officials over them. Sounds like the deep state, huh? Where there are people that are involved in this whole, you know, and one is watching out for the other, another's watching out for the other, another's watching out for the other. So don't be shocked. Don't be surprised if you see injustice. In the place of justice, he says, there is wickedness. Even in our Department of Justice, it's not always there, at least not equal justice under the law. So what do we do? How do we come to grips with that? As Solomon gives the answer in verse 17, he said, I said to myself, God will judge. God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man for a time, there's the word again, a time for every matter and for every deed is there. So what does that say to those who think they're getting away with their sin? Are they going to get away with their sin? No, they won't. Maybe for a time, right? You can hide it for a while. But they really aren't getting away with it. They will experience God's judgment in one form or another, especially when they stand before Him on the day of judgment. God will judge. Vengeance is mine. I might repay. I will repay, says the Lord. So when you see wickedness in the place of justice, don't be fooled. God has an appointed time in which He will judge every man. Did you notice that? Every man. And that's why, that's why we need Jesus, right? That's why we need Jesus. Because He took our punishment. He became our substitute. And when we stand before God, if we're in Christ, what's the encouragement? There's no condemnation. To those who are in Christ Jesus. God is holy. Sin must be punished. Either you pay for it or let Jesus pay for it. I want Jesus to pay for my sin. I don't want to stand before God one day without the righteousness of Jesus. And He offers that today. Isn't that good news? That's the Gospel. That's the good news. The law says you will stand before God. The gospel says in Jesus Christ there is no condemnation. Praise God for that. Why? Because of the cross. Took our sin there. Won the victory. Conquered death. Rose from the grave. That's why we can have victory. Jesus paid it all. The hymn writer says, right? All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Praise the Lord for that. One final lesson about time. God has made it possible to enjoy the time we've been given. Did you know that? Do you know that God wants you to enjoy life? How many of you believe that? Huh? Absolutely. Solomon is clear in telling us that our time is limited. One day we are going to die, and in this sense, he says, we are no different than the beasts, than animals. Did you catch that when we read the text? Verse 18, I said to myself, concerning the sons of men, God, I surely tested them in order for them to see that they are but beasts. 
So if anybody says he's an animal, you can say, right, that's what the Bible says. For the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. What is that? As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath, and there is no advantage for man over beast, for all is vanity, all go to the same place, all came from dust, and all return to the dust. So that's how we're like animals. Sin has brought death, and just as animals die, we die. But there's some differences here too, right? This doesn't mean that in every way, Man has no advantage over an animal. The rest of Scripture is clear on this, that we are created in the image of God. We have a soul that will live forever. But in terms of our bodies, it's the same. We came from dust. We shall return to dust. Therefore, our time, it's limited, isn't it? If you get as old as me, and some of you are older than me, we're living on borrowed time, aren't we? Like my dad would say, he used to say, he said, you've got one, one, one step, he said, I got one step in the grave and the other on a, on a banana peel. <laughs> we're approaching, we're approaching the end. And yet, what does Solomon say? We can still enjoy the time we've been given. And he obviously wants us to grasp this because he says it twice. Verse 12. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Verse 22, I've seen that nothing is better than that man should be happy in his activities, for that is his lot. For who will bring him to see what will occur after him? So what's the lesson? Though life is short, and the older you get, the more you realize that. You look back and think, where on earth did all of those years go? I just look back, you know, we've, we've been here almost 19 years. And it's just like, where in the world did that go? You're probably thinking, that's been a long time. But for me, it seems like a short time. It's like, whoa, where did that time go? So though life is short and, and often difficult, right? Isn't life hard sometimes? Absolutely it is. But Solomon says we can still enjoy the time we've been given. And he tells us how. First of all, we need to know God. Because apart from Him, there is no true enjoyment in life. At the end of chapter 2, verse 25, he asks this question, For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without Him, without God? What's the answer to that question? No one. There's no real joy, real enjoyment in life apart from God. No lasting enjoyment. And so we don't miss the point. He says it again, verse 13. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is the gift of God. So we need to know the Lord. That's the, that's, the, that's the bottom line. That, that's the foundation. You need to know God. And so don't make the mistake of trying to find a jo enjoyment apart from God because you won't find it. Look at all the, the wealthy, the athletes, the rich, the Hollywood stars. How much joy is there? It's just not there apart from God. 
So we need to know Him. And then Solomon makes it clear that we need to trust Him. We need to trust Him. It's impossible to find joy in life if we don't trust God. Because there are many things about life, at least from our limited human perspective, that don't make sense. And if we were to make a list of all the things that have happened just in our lives here together, who are here this morning, things we don't understand, I think the list could go on for a while, right? Yeah. But when we trust that God is in control of what happens in our life, when we trust that God makes all things beautiful in its time, when we trust that God has a glorious, eternal future for those who love Him, doesn't that make life a little bit different if you have hope versus no hope? There are people all around us that are living with no hope. Any idea where they'll spend eternity? If you know Jesus, you know. And that makes a difference in the way we live. We're going to sing a song as we close today. Ira Stanfield wrote, I don't know about tomorrow. I just live from day to day. I don't borrow from the sunshine, for its skies may turn to gray. I don't worry or the future, for I know what Jesus said. And today I'll walk beside Him, for He knows what lies ahead. Many things about tomorrow I don't seem to understand. But I know who holds tomorrow, and I know who holds my hand. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank You that You are the one that enables us to make it through the the challenges of life. Lord, help us, first of all, to trust you that we might know you as our Savior, that we might have that assurance of, of life eternal. And then, Lord, to walk with you daily in fellowship and trusting that, that you are the God who, who has not abandoned your creation. You've not abandoned us. Uh, Lord, you are working in our lives each and every day. So help us to understand these lessons about time. The limited time we've been given, Lord, help us not to waste that time, but to invest that time, to use it in, in, in walking with you and serving you and serving others. Lord, do your work in our midst this morning uh, through this word. In Jesus' name we pray.